little bit of uh, audience participation as we get started this morning. Who here, if you're willing, right? Who here has ever been scammed? Hey, we all have. Might as well all raise our hands, right? Y'all remember those when those hoses first came out that were uh, they guaranteed would fit into a little bucket, and then when you filled them up, they would be as long as you needed them to be? Like, I bought one of those, and I thought, that's going to be the greatest thing ever. I'll have to get rid of this heavy hose and all this stuff. And the first time I used it, it broke it got a hole in it, water was going everywhere, it wouldn't go back into the bucket, and I thought, this is the worst thing ever. And I was right, it was. Nah, not really the worst thing ever, right? You know, there's one thing that even whether you realize it or not, that we've all kind of fallen into, that we're all, that we've all been scammed for or by, if you will, being a grown-up. As a kid, I couldn't wait to be a grown-up, right? I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I was going to have all this freedom. I wasn't going to have to answer to anybody. I could eat whatever I wanted to eat, go to bed when I wanted to go to bed, do whatever I wanted. I could throw off the shackles of rules and regulations so I could be my own person. And now here I am, some 30 years removed from my 18th birthday when society, for whatever reason, deems that you become an adult. And I can tell you that's a bunch of garbage. That's a bunch of baloney, right? We think we want the freedom and we think we want the autonomy that comes with being a, an adult. We want that fairy tale, that freedom. But what we soon realize as we get into adulthood, if we really live into it, is that not much gets accomplished with the freedom we think that we are getting as an adult. Because we like that freedom, but little gets accomplished without having somebody that holds your feet to the fire, if you will. A spouse a mentor, a group, a community of people that stand around you and help you kind of stay on task because without accountability, nothing really gets done. I read a lot of books about business and success and all those things and making goals. And the one thing that seems to be the, the overarching theme is that without somebody to hold you accountable, you most likely will not achieve the goals that you want to achieve in life. Like, that's just the reality of it. And as adults, we, we hate the idea of accountability, don't we? We hate the idea of somebody telling us, we hate the idea of government telling us how much money we have to pay or, or how fast we can or can't drive or where we, you know, I live in a, in a community with an HOA and I've run into my HOA more than once, run up against them, if you will, more than once because I don't like being told what to do with my land, my house. But if we're going to be successful which is the theme of a lot of books, self-help books, business books, people who be successful, people who want to go far in life. If you want to go far in life, take a group of people with you. If you want to go fast and end up burning out, go alone. But if you really want to accomplish what's out there ahead of you, then you better take some people with you. But that's not what the 18-year-old me wanted to hear, right? That's not even what the 12-year-old me wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that it was all going to be sunshine and roses when I got old enough to make my own decisions and buy my own food and live in my own place. And what I really wanted, what I think we really want when we talk about that and we talk in those circles is what we really want is we want that ideal life that is kind of pushed on us through our society, that cushy life of, of having all the what you want without the responsibility and without the the price to pay for it, if you will. Because it kind of feels like a fee. It kind of feels like a tax whenever we actually have to do something over here in order to have the freedom over here. 
talked last week about the book I'm listening to by Bono, his autobiography called Surrender. And one of the latest sections that I was listening to, he talked about his family starting. He talked about his kids and how different all of his kids were, which isn't a, a new thing. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. But he, he, his second child was especially creative. She's a young girl, and she loved to be out in front of everybody. She loved to get up and sing and dance and, and carry on. And she would do that with reckless abandon. She would just get out whenever she could, and she loved doing that. And, and as he watched his kids grow, he said, you know, there is a danger to becoming an adult. Because as an adult, our creativity is stifled. As an adult, that desire, that push to, to be and, and just to act and just to be impulsive is really driven down. I love it when I see Isaac and, and, and Noah, when Noah gets up here to help out, Isaac gets up almost weekly, helps out with the, with the, the welcome and praise and reads. And I, I appreciate that. And when I was his age, I didn't have that self-confidence to do that. But what he doesn't realize is that he's got a safety net around him. He's got a group of adults like Michael and Madeline. He's got a group of, of friends and a group of, of mentors that are gathered around him that are keeping him focused and keeping him headed in a certain direction. Very much so a safety net, if you will. It's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? This freedom in one hand and constraint in the other. And how they hold tension against each other. A, a positive tension, if you will. And we really find this tension when we try and, and live out the freedom that we think we have in this world... But what we don't realize, even as adults, is we have that freedom to act and, and be, believe and, and behave in certain ways because we have people around us that are, that are holding us accountable and helping us not do crazy things and helping us not do silly things and keeping us on track. And so when Bono says, you know, it's, it's a danger to kids' creativity when they grow up because adulthood stifles that. And I wonder, as I read this passage this week from James chapter 2, if the same thing doesn't happen to our faith. Do you think it's easier to act on your faith as a kid than it is as an adult? As a kid, there's no family to provide for. There's no job to consider. There's no long-term strategy that you've got to look at and figure out how it all works together and how it all moves together. We only see the world that's directly in front of us, and we don't worry about all that other stuff out there, even though our parents and our, our peers and our mentors are out there holding us up, if you will. And you see that affects our faith because we become an adult and what all of a sudden happens to us? When we become an adult, we become rational, don't we? All of a sudden we've got to think about, okay, I've got to, I can do this, but I've also got to do this. I could come on the 20th and help clean up, but you know what else I've got to do? I've got to write a sermon and I've got to, I've got to cut my grass. And, I've got, and there's all these reasons that things, of, of the, the checks, right? The checks and balances... Because there's always an excuse as an adult not to do something. That's the reality of it. When we get into adulthood, there's always a reason. I can always find a reason not to do something if I don't want to do it. Regardless of what it is. If it's a family event, I can really find a reason not to go to a family event, right? If it's a church event, if it's a work event, if it's work, I can really find a reason not to go do that sometimes, right? And as a rule, the older we get, the louder things play in our head about why we should not do certain things. And we always rationalize that out as, 
responsibility. There's a book, another book I'm reading right now called The Psychology of Money, and he talks about how negative mindsets and negative people control the flow of almost everything in our society. Because when we hear somebody being negative, what do we almost immediately think? That person sounds smart. The negative is almost always equated with somebody who is a deep thinker and is is concerned about the greater good. And we always give more credence to somebody who is negative than we do to somebody who's positive. And I've sat in so many church meetings where one person who... We sit there and we've had so much good stuff being talked about, so much good being talked about. and, And all of a sudden, one person has something negative to say and the whole room all of a sudden shifts. And it's like we give more credence to somebody who doesn't have any vision. We give more credence to somebody who doesn't have any foresight, who doesn't doesn't have faith. Oh, that's a harsh way to say it, isn't it? For whatever reason, we seem to see negative people, pessimists, as people who are smarter people. Because we can always come up with a reason why not to do something. We can always come up with a reason why not to do something. And when we start talking about it, it sounds kind of smart. So James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Or in James chapter 2, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, if you want to follow along. Suppose a brother or sister, sister is without daily food... And close. And, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be, and be fed, and does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, I, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Congratulations. Even the demons believe that. You foolish person, person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person... You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Mm. What good is it? And that's a tough question, isn't it, that James has given us here. And no doubt it's really a rhetorical question. Given what he talks about through the rest of the text, right through the rest of the chapters, it's, it's rhetorical, right? What good is faith that doesn't actually do anything? Is it really faith? And I think it's worth noting as you look at this context, as James talks about, suppose there's somebody in your midst who doesn't have what they need just to live today. It speaks to a breakdown in society that we've almost become accustomed to in our society. In their societies, different. In your circle, in your group, you were to take care of each other. That was what you were to do. And if it was gotten to the point where you weren't taking care of each other, if those around you in your midst, there was a really, really big faith problem. Because if you step back just a couple of books and you read about those Christians who were just right at the edge of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, those people did what? 
They sold everything, right? They sold everything, lived together, shared all things. Because they were so convicted by what Jesus was and what He had done. And now you're just a few steps removed from that. And already, already there was a breakdown in community. Already there was a breakdown in what was should or should not be done or what should or should not be happening. And so the question that James asks right here, what good is it, is deeply rooted in faith. Whether you and I believe in God enough to allow that to affect the way we act. Not just in an inward way, not just in what's inside of our heart, not just what's inside of our soul, but in the way that we interact in the world. Does our faith in God constrain us to do things that God puts in front of us? Does our faith in God hold us accountable to a greater thing than what is just happening just right outside of our window. And he says, you believe in in God, good. If your faith doesn't cause some first order change in your life, you are, and it's harsh, but it's worthy of hearing. You're no different than the demons because they believe that God, because what you're saying is I believe in God, but I don't believe in God enough to let Him change me. Because the demons say the same. That's not a crowd I want to be in, is it? And so James gives two, two examples here. One's abstract and two are examples from Old Testament history. But they're all very real and very viable examples. James doesn't take them and put them on different parts. He doesn't put Abraham's sacrifice up here and Rahab's sacrifice here and feeding or clothing somebody who needs it down here. It's all here. It's all about faith. They're all on the same level. Feeding and clothing the needy, that's a faith issue. It's whether God, the, the love of God, the, the faith in God that you have provokes you to clothe somebody and give somebody something that they don't have, that you have a lot of, even if that matters. Or you look at Abraham's story, sacrificing your son, that's a faith issue, right? Or Rahab, Hiding the spies. And it's almost incredulous. Like It's like, I don't think we can put all these things on the same level. It just doesn't work that way. Because these are apples and oranges. It's not the same thing. But I like to look at it like we looked last week when we talked about sin. The outworking of sin in your life exposes something that's inside of you. When we sin, however that works out in our life, just expose the fact that we have broken a relationship with God. Regardless of how it outworks in your life, regardless of how people see that, it still points to the one reality that we have a broken relationship with God. And faith is the same way. If there is an outworking of faith, that bears witness to the fact that you have a relationship with God and that faith in God has caused you to move in some way and do something in your life. So that your faith will produce something, not in a, and this is what you have to talk about when you talk about this passage, because people want to take James and want to put it against Paul and the, the struggle of Paul, salvation by grace, and James, where James talking about salvation by works, and it's overplayed because it's, it's, a, it's not the conversation. I don't think James is trying to say, okay, this is how much you need to do in order to be saved. James is saying, if your faith is real, it's going to make you do something that is counterintuitive. It's going to make you act and behave in a way that does not make sense to the rest of the world. And so the question I think that we have to struggle with today, that you have to struggle with and that I have to struggle with, is what is is God inviting you to do with your faith? 
And again, I don't think that's a quantity question. What is how is what the quantity? What do you? What do you? How much can you do to be to show that your faith is real? It's not a question that's that's there to determine boundaries and say, okay, I've done enough. I've gone to the edge. I've been to where now people know that I have it. It's not how much I need to do. Is what do I need to do to feed somebody? who needs food, to give somebody clothing who needs clothing is not a big ask. But God, that person is lazy. That person is an abuser. That person chronically makes bad decisions. That person is a crook. To hide spies, that's a much bigger ask, isn't it? God, I might lose my life if I do this. I I might... Get kicked out of the city. To sacrifice a child, that's an ultimate ask, isn't it? God, I, I, I believe, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I, <laughs> I draw the line right there. And I believe if we could hear Rahab and Abraham talking to us, I believe that what we would hear is that if God puts something in front of you to do, the task is do it. The task isn't seeking great and amazing things to do. The, da- the task is doing the simple things that God puts in front of you every day so those things build on top of each other to, to an amazing homage to God. Regardless of how small that thing is or how big that thing is. And again, the pessimist wants to rise up and contradict all that because excuse, excuses flow freely. When we're asked to act in a way that other people look at us and be like, now why did you do that? But that, that is what faith requires. Some sermons are easy to write. Some sermons are harder. The sermons that are easy, the text is easy, the ideas flow easy, the goal, it's easily defined. This one is a little harder because it ultimately it's very, very personal to everybody sitting in the pews. The pews, listen to me. In the seats today, not pews, thankfully. Everybody sitting in the seats today, it, it's a little different because I can't define the outcome for each one of you. I can't say this is what you need to do in order to show that you have faith. And I don't think that's even the right way to approach it. The right way to approach it is what is God asking me to do with my faith today? What is God leading me to do today? And it's a very personal question. And I don't want to oversimplify. And I don't want to overcomplicate. Because the end result is you have to answer the question. You have to consider what is God asking me to do in response to my faith in Him. And when we look at those who have notable faith, that we look and we see, hey, that's a pretty out there way to act. What we see is we see people who are acting counterintuitively against the grain where they take stands and they do actions and they do direct things. For many of us, sitting in this room, staying at New Garden has been a faith in action moment. We've had to have awkward conversations with parents. We've had to have awkward conversations with siblings about things like women's roles and instrumental music. 
And some in here have had relationships that have been strained or damaged in the midst of that. And in this season of your life, this is what faith is required of you. That you be faithful to what God is doing and where God is leading, not only you, but this church. And so it looks different for everybody. But active, real faith looks like something. It doesn't look like nothing. I think that's the point. I think the point is, is that real faith does. That the actions aren't a way to prove you have faith. The actions aren't a way for you to get into heaven. The actions are a natural result of walking with God. And so let me encourage your prayer today or this week as you walk around. Say, God, show me what to do and give me the courage to do it. No matter how big or no matter how small, God, open the door. And then if, I need to, if it needs to be done, push me through it. Shove me through it. Help me to see where you're working and help me to join you in the midst of it. And so as we go to the table this morning, let's renew our commitment. Our commitment to the kingdom. And let's stop listening and this is the hard part, right? Because the negative is so... I, I don't want to get on a soapbox. I'm going to try not to. One of the reasons why our media is so successful today is because they're so negative. And if you want to see how, how much that works in our society, look at just turn on the news for five seconds. That's all you need to do. And listen to the vomit of negativity that comes about everybody and everything and how bad everything is and how worse it's going to get. And just listen. And it wouldn't be on there if people weren't watching. It wouldn't be out there if people weren't buying into it and, and, and keep telling it and keep telling it and keep telling it. And so let's renew our commitment, if nothing else, to stop listening to the people saying no and start listening to the people that are actually doing Let's stop listening to the people who say that's not a good idea and look around and see who are actually doing something and join them in what they're doing. As you gather around the table, ask a tough question. And if you're going to come to the table this morning, be ready to answer the question, what is God asking you to do? What is God leading you to do with your faith? Don't beat each other up. But let's be a family. Let's encourage. Let's walk together. Let's commune with God. And let's see what we can do to be different. Pray with me. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the faith that we have. And God, give us a greater faith. Help us not to be scared of how somebody's going to view something we do or don't do. Help us to listen less to those who are saying it can't be done and join those who are actually doing it. Father, when you put something in my way this week, give me the courage to do it. Give me the peace to know that you're leading me. And just help me to be a follower. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for a table that we can gather around and commune with God. Walk with us. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Come, let's go to the table.